Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled to come into the presence of your holy word. Lord, so often we uh, encounter information that comes our way and then we sift it through kind of what we think and what we prefer and what we feel and and yet as we come into the presence of your word that we approach it completely differently that we approach it uh, as it is as the holy word of god preserved through the millennia gifted to your children alive, active, working by the power of your spirit in the lives of your children. And certainly, Lord, able, able to transform the hardest of hearts. And so, Lord, uh, with whatever condition we enter in here this morning, we pray that your word would do just that. Lord, that it would minister to the deepest places of who we are, our being, and that truth would ring forth louder, Lord, than any other message that uh, is in there or that we encounter in their meaning in our hearts. And so bless your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up uh, in the last three verses of chapter 3. And uh, as I begin reading them, you'll, you'll probably think, if you've been with us, wow, that sounds familiar, that sounds similar, because... I've referenced these couple of verses probably seven times, ten times uh, in the studies we've had now in the book of 1 Timothy. And that is because these final few verses of the chapter, they really do sum up the purpose for which Paul was writing. And so reminding you, let's read them again, verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Now, we've said it before, particularly during one of our first studies in this book, but I'll remind you that Paul sent his mentee, Timothy, to the city of Ephesus because Paul himself couldn't make his way to the city of Ephesus. He had other responsibilities that he needed to take care of. There were other pressing needs, and he could only be in one place at one time, and so he sent someone in his stead. We learned in our study of chapter 1, verse 3, it says, As I urged you, Timothy, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. They, those were some of the pressing needs that were taking place there in Ephesus. But as we see there, Macedonia had pressing needs. And so Paul had to pick one of the two places to go to. I'm going to go to Macedonia first, deal with that, then I'll make my way to Ephesus. But because the needs are so great and so time uh, important, Timothy, I need you to go there. And that was his charge. The rest of the book, really, from verse 3 of chapter 1, is Paul's charge. And here now, as we come to verse 14 again, or 15 really, notice how he points out that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave. You, might, you can get started without me. You have the directions, you know what you need to do. Remember, I've been saying it this way, kind of summarizing Paul, uh, Timothy's ministry, is to go to Ephesus to attain order and then stick around there and work to maintain order. Because sadly... 
The church of Ephesus, the very church that Paul had poured himself into, year and a half, we're talking, actually even longer than that, two and two years and like three months or so that he was there in Ephesus pouring himself into it when he would uh, kind of be passing near the area. He would call the elders to come because he wanted to invest in them even more. Ephesus was such a significant city in the world at that time. A lot of merchants and stuff passed through there and went on to other places. This was a very important place, and Paul knew it to be a very important place for the impact it was going to have on so many other places in the world. And sadly, even there, Despite all of the time that Paul spent, there were people in that church drifting away from the basic truths of the Christian faith. And maybe even sadder, more sad, I'm not sure the proper English, um, the leaders, some of the leaders were drifting away from the truth of the Christian faith. Remember back in chapter 1, look at verse 19. Paul there, he said that there were some that by rejecting this have made shipwreck of the faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. In that same chapter, Paul, he spoke of certain persons, quote, having swerved and wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding what they are saying or the things about which they make their confident assertions. Now, whether those certain persons are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he names later in the chapter, or, or there are other people that Paul doesn't name, we really can't say for certain. But what it is pretty clear is that there were those in positions of leadership or those that were in apparent positions of leadership rising up and say, hey, gather around me, that had swerved and wandered away from the basic truths of the Christian faith, to use Paul's words. And so Paul then writes this passage as a reminder that the church must give attention to the essential truths of the faith. And that's what I think he's going to accomplish in verses 15 and 16 of our passage today, this chapter. So we might summarize verse 15 where Paul gives the heart of the church's mission. Why do churches exist? He gives the heart of that mission in verse 15 and then in verse 16, I would suggest to you that he gives the heart of the church's message. This is what it needs to be about proclaiming. Some of you may remember Ronald Reagan in his second inaugural address. In that inaugural address, he said these words, Freedom is a fragile thing, and it's never more than one generation from extinction. And I was reminded of that as I was thinking of the Apostle Paul here, because I think he might paraphrase that statement and say, doctrinal truth is a fragile thing and is never more than one generation away from extinction. Like the Ephesians, you and I, this church, as a body of believers, we need regularly to be reminded of the foundational truths of our faith, lest we drift away from those foundational truths. And so Paul, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. He says, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world and he was taken up into glory. The church in Ephesus had forgotten 
how one ought to behave in the household of God, how one ought to function, how one ought to move forward in the household of God. And again, Timothy's charge is to go and remind them of those things that Paul had previously taught them in Ephesus. And if need be, reteach them some things because they had so forgotten, it's as if they've never learned those things. Now, some of those things we know from chapter 1 included the purpose of the Old Testament law. Why is there an Old Testament law? Do believers need to kind of follow that law in order to be righteous with God? Well, the people had gotten off track. They swerved away. Another was the appropriate place of genealogies, as he mentions there in chapter 1. Another was the response of, uh, to secret revelations. I know this isn't in your Bible, but God ha- gave me a revelation of truth to share with all of you. Well, I don't understand. Well, you wouldn't because he didn't give it to you. He gave it to me. You know, this kind of idea. Paul talked about that. Paul, it also included how they've kind of drifted off or gotten off um, the path is the role of men and women in the congregation and the types of people that should be selected as leaders of the congregation and the qualifications for those leaders. All of these things, the church was kind of, they'd forgotten what Paul had taught them. And Timothy had to go and bring them back. Now, Paul, he begins, and he uses the phrase there, the household of God. Now, there, again, he's not referring to the building. This isn't the household of God, where, as some versions, they drop hold, and it's just the house of God. And many times we think of the place where the church will gather. That's not Paul's point. Paul, his point, he's rather, he's referring to the people that go to that house of God the members of the church themselves that compose God's household. So his metaphor is not of a building, his metaphor is of a family in reality. And followers of Christ, we are members of God's family. And as such, we have the responsibility to conduct ourselves as he mandates. Remember, it's God's household. It's not our household, it's God's household. And thus he has the right to dictate how that household should be led and how that household should be governed, and how that household should act. There's, there's gazillion resources. Somehow I got on somebody's mailing list, and I get emails and letters and mail and snail mail and all this kind of stuff on how to operate a church, how to govern a church, how to grow a church. I can, there's just a million of them that come in here. And maybe they're helpful, and sometimes I glance at them like, oh, look at that, how about that? Uh, Oh, not doing that one, you know, sometimes uh, there. But none of those resources, from all of those trained and educated people that, you know, are helping all over the world, none of those should be as authoritative as these three pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. Because God is the head, and he must be allowed to remain as such. Now, in addition to comparing the people of God to a family... A household, Paul also uses the word church. You see there in verse 15, which is the church of the living God. Now, this is a word I think that we have become so familiar with that we may actually miss the significance of the statement that is being made when Paul calls this gathering of people the church. In the original language, the word is ecclesia. It's a word which means called out ones or separated ones. And the interesting thing about the word is it initially wasn't applied to the church at all. 
It was a common word, a, a, a word that was used very often to describe anything that was separated or anything that was called out. You guys come over here and sit over there. That was an ecclesia. And as the New Testament era progressed, it was used more and more and more and more to refer to the church that the word church tended to mean this that we have here. But it's a word that simply means the called out ones. It's a good word, I think, because God's people indeed are the called out ones. In the book of Hebrews, they're referred to as strangers and pilgrims, as sojourners and as exiles. First Peter actually says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We're exiles, we're sojourners, we're pilgrims here on this earth. We have been separated unto God. The church is a good name for those people because they are the ones that, though deserving of judgment, will not bear that judgment because of the work of Christ on their behalf. All have sinned, but not all will be judged because there have been some that have been separated. There have been some that have been called out because of the work of Jesus Christ. They're the ones that have been separated unto God as his own. There's a debate that goes around. It's not worth really entering into. But we're all the children of God, like humanity. And people are like, well, yes and no, kind of, sort of. In reality, it's those that have been called out that are his children. They are the ones that are separated. John 15 says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, you see, separated unto him. In what's become known as Jesus's high priestly prayer, John 17, this is what Jesus prayed to his father. He said, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, he says. So again, we are physically present in this world, but in reality, we're separate and we're distinct in our value system from this world, or at least we should be. God's people are the ecclesia. We are the called out ones. And it's that distinction which allows the church to be the light of the world that Jesus declared that we are in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen, we do the world no favor by conforming ourselves to its image. There are a lot of people, I think, with sincere intentions that want to win people and their conclusion is, let's become like the world, then people will like us, and then they'll want to become us. And the reality is, we need to be separate and distinct. From, you don't have to be weird. You don't have to be peculiar or odd or something. You're strange, man. Some of us are, but not because of Jesus, I hope. Alrighty? But if we're trying to be like the world in order to win the world, you're not the light of the world or a light to the world, maybe I'll say, in this instance, to make the point. We're to be conformed into the image of Christ. And that way, people will see Christ, even in us, fallen human beings. And so Paul says we are the called out ones. We're the church of the living God. The next thing that he declares in verse 15 is this idea of the church being a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Some versions, instead of the word buttress there, it uses the word foundation. Some use the word bulwark. The idea is this stabilizing wall there. And so notice Paul, he uh, unequivocally refers to the 
truth. And I've said this a few times of late, maybe it's just something resonating in my heart, but we live in a culture that increasingly wants to hold to this idea of a myriad of truths, a culture that wants to be or wants to hold this idea that you have your truth and you have your truth and I have my truth. And even if those two truths or three truths, even if they conflict with one another, somehow they're all true. We live in a culture that values the intensity of our belief more than what we actually believe. And so as long as you are sincere, even if you're sincerely wrong, but as long as you are sincere, that's really what matters. The reality, as is often forgotten, is people can be sincerely wrong. Many of us live many years of our lives sincerely wrong. And God graciously opened our eyes to see and to believe and to know. And now we try and communicate that to others, and they're like, you're a bigot. You're so this, you're so that. Look, man, God opened my eyes. I see, I understand. I'm not trying to, you know, shove something down your throat. I'm just trying to help you understand what I've come to understand. Notice, so Paul, he refers to the truth. And in doing so, he says the church is the pillar and the buttress of that truth. The word pillar there, it refers to a column, which is designed to support a building. The word buttress, in my version, it refers to the foundation upon which that truth is built. The church is to be a testimony to God's truth. In Paul's metaphor here, the church, it's the foundation and pillar that holds up the truth. That is our mission in this world, is to hold up that truth. As remarkable as I think this seems to me, the church is the means on earth by which God has chosen to proclaim and display his truth. Don't you think he could do a more effective, like, you know, plane writing or whatever, that kind of thing in the sky? Um, And yet he chooses to use us, his church, one of them here in Ewing, New Jersey, others scattered all throughout the world. Truth, it matters what people believe. And truth is constantly under attack in our world. Remember the very, very beginning when Satan deceived Eve? He did so by challenging what she had heard, twisting the truth of what she had heard, and giving her a lie. And she responded, as did her husband. And so Satan is constantly attacking truth in our world. And amid all of these attacks, the church is to hold up truth like a pillar, and to secure it like a foundation. We have been given stewardship of God's holy word. That's a word we don't use as much anymore. We are the managers. We don't own the building. We don't own the company or the business. We're the manager. We're there working for another, and the other is the Lord. We've been given stewardship of God's holy word, and it's our duty to guard it as a precious possession. Not to twist it, not to soften it, but to guard it. Paul goes on in verse 16, he says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He says, He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And so here, Paul, I think the context, the connection, how do we get from one to the other? Paul here is discussing the important role the church plays in preserving truth, and then he presents if you will, some of the most important truths that the church needs to guard and to protect. 
he says, he begins by saying, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. My version says, ESV says, great indeed. Some say, without controversy. All right, no doubt at all. So great indeed. Wow, that's great indeed. You know, without controversy, no debate. I like the kind of the way that's explained there. More literally, I've been told that this could be written as confessedly great. Oh, this is unbelievable news. You got to hear. It's confessedly great news that you just need to share with others. It has to be openly confessed. It has to be proclaimed. And so when we think of the church as a pillar and a buttress of truth, it's a pillar and buttress of the truth that must be proclaimed, that has to be openly confessed. And as he goes into verse 16, I think he provides here a wonderful summary of that Christian truth. And in it, you'll notice at the heart of the six points that Paul mentions, there's a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. So these are the truths that I want to make sure we all hold on to, Paul speaking. And at the heart of these truths, there is a person. He says, he was manifested in the flesh. The he carries over. He was vindicated by the spirit. He was seen by angels. He was proclaimed among the nations. He was believed on in the world. And he was taken up in glory. Let's break these down a little bit. The mystery of godliness. Back in verse 9 of the chapter, you can glance up there in your Bibles if you'd like, uh, Paul talked about the mystery of the faith. And at that point we learned and maybe reminded ourselves that a mystery in the New Testament sense isn't like an Agatha Christie movie, that kind of mystery. A mystery in the New Testament sense is a spiritual truth which was previously hidden or unknown. And so the mystery of the faith, the mystery of godliness. And I'm not sure there's much difference between the two. There might be some slight distinction here, but I'm not sure there's a, that great of a difference between the mystery of the faith and the mystery of godliness because both of them seem to be referring to the great truth of salvation and righteousness that is made available through Jesus Christ for those who will believe. That's the mystery of the faith. That's the mystery of godliness. That's the great distinction between the Christian faith and all other philosophies and religions. And so if a person wants to get in some philosophy, learn some things, apply them to their life, and make themselves a little bit of a better person, great, go for it. If a person is involved in some other religion and you know, they're learning what they're learning, they're applying it to their lives and they become a better person, great, that's wonderful, go for it. But there is a distinction, a great distinction, between the Christian faith and all other faiths and all other philosophies. And though the details may vary slightly or even greatly in those other religions and in those other philosophies, at their heart, all other philosophies and all other religions provide men and women with instructions as to how, do they, how they are to live and then essentially says to them, good luck. Good luck with that. Work hard, try hard. Here's what you need to do to get to heaven. Here's what you need to do to get to paradise. Here's what you need to do to obtain nirvana. Here, or whatever the equivalent place is of eternal bliss is for that philosophy, that religion, they say to them essentially, try your best and hopefully you will get there. But the message of the Christian faith is profoundly different. Because whereas other faiths and philosophies will tell you that godliness or holiness is either produced through, and it's funny, complete opposites. It's either produced through your own effort 
or through your extreme denial of yourself. All other faiths and philosophies, they point to that. Try really, really hard or deny yourself so that God will have to let you in because look how much you, know, you denied yourself. The Christian faith, however, points not to what we can or cannot do, but what to Jesus Christ himself has done. And the great truth that the church is to serve as a builder and buttress of is that godliness springs forth from the saving knowledge of the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the means by which God is known, and from that knowledge come forth that godliness. Solomon, King Solomon in the Old Testament, he wrote you know, the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and so on. In his great wisdom, he informed us of this, that God has put eternity into the hearts of man. Ecclesiastes chapter 311, he has put eternity in man's heart. And what that means is that human beings are born with this sense of the eternal. Doesn't matter where you live, doesn't matter what area you live, you can live on some island somewhere with just a few people. There's always some attempt amongst that group of people to be in relationship with God in some way. And often it takes all kinds of forms. But despite our sin nature, humanity is born knowing and recognizing that something is wrong, that something is missing. And what is missing is being in right relationship with our creator. And so man tries to reestablish that relationship. In fact, the very word religion at its root, it comes from a Latin word that means to relink. Man attempts to relink himself with God. And the message of the Christian faith is, you can't, but I did. The lines that we're about to read here, they line up, they follow those six points that I mentioned and read. They probably come from an early church hymn. We don't know this for sure, but that's the suspicion of the scholars. And it's an early church hymn that the people proclaim. Uh, the person, where the people proclaim the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so again, in talking here about the mystery of godliness, Paul doesn't go on to explain, well, do this and do that. He doesn't explain the procedure or the process or the program. He introduces us to a person, and he points us to Jesus. And so these truths, great indeed, right, without controversy, they should be without controversy among believers. There are, I think there are other doctrines that good people come to different conclusions. You know, I believe that the rapture is going to be here. Well, I believe it's going to be there. You know, I don't think that you're a bad person one way or the other necessarily. But these truths that I'm about to look at, and Paul, we already read a few times, need to be without controversy. And sadly, there are many that name the name of Christ, call themselves a church that debate and flat-out deny many of these truths. The reality is, all six of these truths, they are what the Scripture teaches. There really is no debate as to whether or not the Scripture teaches these things. The sticking point that some have come to that deny these truths is whether that's that the Scripture means these things. And I am of the opinion that the Scripture says what it says, and it means what it means. And so Paul, he begins and. He says here, the first truth, he was manifested in the flesh. I think this one's pretty obvious. He's referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which is God becoming a man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you'll notice 
in that his eternal existence is understood in the statement. And so Jesus didn't come into existence at his birth or at his conception. He had already eternally been in existence and was manifested in this world at his birth. Again, Jesus didn't come into existence that holy night in Bethlehem. Rather, that was where he showed himself to humanity, where the great mediator between God and man took on human flesh in order to be both fully God and fully man so that he can serve as the only go-between of all humanity. And it shouldn't surprise us that at the very uh, place that the Apostle Paul begins is where so many cults and false religions get it wrong about whether Jesus was fully God, whether he was a good man, whether he was fully God but not a real man but just a spirit. So many cults and religions get this one wrong. The scripture says Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh and he came to this earth no less God than he was when he was worshipped by the angels for all eternity past. And he came in the flesh, he did so, that he might, and I'll quote the book of Hebrews here, be made like his brothers in every respect. Be made like humanity in every respect. And ultimately go on to give his life as a sacrifice, a propitiation is the word that's used in Hebrews, on behalf of those fellow human beings. So first he says he was manifested in the flesh. Number two, he says that he was vindicated by the Spirit. Different versions use the phrase justified in the Spirit or by the Spirit. In Matthew chapter 18, we learn there that immediately following the interaction that Jesus was having with his disciples, that's when he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they answered, and then he followed it up. He began to tell them, or show them, I'll read it to you. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The purpose, the chief purpose of Jesus' manifestation in the flesh was to make his way to Jerusalem, where he would suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the chief purpose for why he'd come. Now, Jesus accomplished other things. He demonstrated all sorts of things by his example. He taught us many, many important things, but the primary reason for why he came was that he might go to Jerusalem and offer his life as a ransom for many. It was there that he became the means of our justification before God. And because he had accomplished the purpose for which he came, death could not hold him. And since death could not hold him, he was vindicated by the Spirit. It's precisely because he was raised from the dead that you and I can be justified as well. Remember the word justified, a good way to remember is just as if I've never sinned. And so though we are sinners, those of us that have placed our faith in the work of Christ are justified, just as if we have never sinned. His resurrection, Jesus' resurrection by the Spirit, proved his sinlessness. Because if he had any sin of his own, he would have to stay dead to pay for the penalty of that sin. As it's been said, a dead Savior cannot save. But because Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit, we have a living Savior. And as the book of Hebrews also goes on to say, he ever lives to make intercession on our behalf. 
So he was manifested in the flesh. He was vindicated at his resurrection by the Spirit. Next, it goes on to explain that he was seen by angels. Now, this reference here, I think, to this on-looking angels is seen all throughout Jesus' life, from the beginning of his life to the end of his life. You remember in the book of Luke, the Christmas story, there, they were there announcing his birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They were there at the time of his temptation. Matthew 4 tells us, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. They were there as he agonized in the garden of Gethsemane. Luke chapter 22, And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Luke 24, we learn they were there at his resurrection. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, the disciples uh, and the ladies there, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. They were angels. They were there at his ascension, Acts chapter 1. And while they were gazing into heaven, the disciples, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The angels were involved in Jesus' earthly life from beginning to end. This signifies a divine approval of this incarnate Messiah, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels. Paul next says they were proclaimed, among, he was proclaimed among the nations. And so though Jesus himself never set foot outside of the nation of Israel and those nations, which at that point were more properly villages and cities, just to the north uh, of that city, or of that nation of Israel, I should say, though he himself never really traveled the world, nevertheless his name has been proclaimed to the furthest reaches of the earth. The message of the gospel, this mystery of godliness, the mystery of the faith, it's not a message, and it was never intended to be a message for the Jews only, for God's chosen people in that little, little part of the world there, But it's a message that is for men and women and young people from every tribe and every tongue and every people. For all people throughout the whole world, throughout all of time, it's a message that must get proclaimed to them. And Jesus Christ and the work he did on the cross is a message that has been preached to all people everywhere. Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And I just, one of, I think, my greatest uh, joys, if you will, in my life, one of those things you look at and you're like, man, what a great experience, is, has, been able to, has been to go around the world to different places, and one of those was Nepal. And we went to Nepal, we flew in, it's, it's, it's a very different place than here, and so you're in this environment, it's like, what is, this is different, you know, and you're trying to experience it, and then they put you on this van kind of thing, and, and you drive for five hours, and then they're like, all right, you need to get out. Why are we getting out? We're in the middle of nowhere. Well, you got to get on a Jeep, and then you're through the woods and down through rivers and up and down. Uh, and then they're like, all right, get out. What? There's nothing here. Yeah, walk up that mountain. And you walk up to the top of this mountain, and there's this little church. And I honestly believe, for me at least, this was the ends of the earth. And you get in, and you mention, and like, different language and all this kind of stuff, and they're singing a song, and halfway through the song, you make out the language, and they just said Jesus. All the way out here. They've heard about Jesus. 
the message has been proclaimed. And where it hasn't yet been because of time and new cultures or new people that come in, we must bring it there. And it's been proclaimed throughout all the earth, all people everywhere. We don't serve a dead Savior, but a living Savior. Next, Paul will go on to say, and he was believed on in the world. Look around the room. There's some of us here from Jewish background and descent, but the vast majority of us are probably Gentiles. That's the world that it's referring to. Those are the nations that it's referring to. Because of the proclamation of the gospel, so many of us that were so far off have been drawn near to Jesus Christ. You'll notice Paul says believed on in the world. He doesn't say believed about. Paul's not speaking of the acceptance of some historical fact. Oh yeah, Jesus, sure, yeah, I believe he existed. That doesn't accomplish what it needs to accomplish. It's not even believed in, which would seem to like, suggest this acknowledgement of some spiritual power. Paul says believed on. And I think that well, it communicates well this idea of complete dependence upon something. To believe on is to put your trust in him. It's to claim him not as some universal savior, but as your savior. I think it's the difference between believing a chair could hold your weight and actually placing your weight on that chair in confidence that it's going to sustain you. I have these two chairs in my backyard and they were like all dirty and yucky from, you know, years. And I pressure washed them and I bought some spray cans and I was going to throw them away anyway if it didn't work. And I spray painted them and now they're nice and bright and they look great. I never sit in them. <laughs> because when I do, I hear them begin to crack or whatever. I believe if I'm careful and I sit and I don't move, they may hold me, but I'm not going to try it. That's the difference. I can believe in this chair might hold me up, or you can believe on this chair and actually sit down in it. As the disciples, as they went forth proclaiming that Christ not only died for the sins of those that would hear them, but also that he was raised and thus victorious of death, as they went forth and preached that message, many people believed. I would say through the millennia, millions and millions, and probably billions of people have believed that over the last 2,000 years and as a result have had their sins forgiven and access to the presence of God because of the work of Christ. Sadly, in Ephesus, they were drifting from that message. Why would you ever want to drift from that message? Paul says, taken up into glory, which speaks of the, his ascension back to heaven, Acts chapter 1. Great indeed, we confess, he says, is the mystery of godliness, manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. One more demonstration of the God Father's good pleasure and acceptance of the work of his Son. He takes him back into glory. Six phrases that I think summarize the gospel truth, the non-negotiable gospel truth, that our church, the church, has been entrusted to guard and to proclaim. God became a man. He died for our sins. He triumphed over death. He was honored by angels, feared by demons. He ascended into heaven. 
And that is the message that was preached to the uttermost parts of the earth. It's the message that continues today, 2,000 years later, to be proclaimed. And it's the message that still, 2,000 years later, has the ability to cut to the heart of a man or a woman and bring about new life. And that's the heart of the message you and I have been entrusted to proclaim. And my prayer for us, my prayer for myself, but us as a congregation as we go each day from here and we interact with this world that desperately needs to hear these things, my prayer is that we would be faithful to proclaim it until our Lord comes. Amen? I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to celebrate communion together, so don't go running off. Father, we, uh, we pray for us, Lord. I, I know that I suspect that there were some of these elders there in Ephesus that had swerved that didn't necessarily do it on purpose. They weren't nefarious about it in any way. Maybe some were, but I have to imagine many, most of them weren't. And yet, as they just kind of took their eyes off the pages of Scripture, so to speak, it happened. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, today's message, this passage, it would serve as a fresh reminder to us as your children to keep our face in the Scriptures, to dig into it, to study it, to apply it, certainly, to meditate on it. Lord, what a gift it is to us. And Lord, as we continue now into communion, you've told us in your word that as often as we eat this bread and we drink this cup, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim that he came from eternity past and he became a man. We proclaim that he lived on this earth and he walked on this earth and he taught what he taught, but his journey, his face was fixed like stone for the city of Jerusalem because the reason he had came, the reason the Son of Man had come was to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord, we proclaim that he was vindicated by the Holy Spirit of God in that there is an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem. Lord, we proclaim that he was accepted by God as an acceptable sacrifice, the perfect and holy sacrifice. And even the angels proclaim. And Lord, we proclaim that he was taken up into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of God and continually lives to make intercession for his saints. And so even right now, Lord, we are represented before the throne of God because of the Son of God. And so, Lord, as we celebrate that reality by taking communion, Lord, would you minister to our hearts? And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.